You're listening to the fourth episode of Facing It, a podcast about climate grief, eco-anxiety, and what it means to be human in the age of climate crisis. Dr. Jennifer Atkinson will guide you on a journey through the emotional toll of ecological loss and mass extinction, and offer strategies for moving from despair to action in our fight for a livable future. This series is produced by Intrasonics UK with the music and sound recordings of Cryon. Ten years ago, when I became a college professor, I would ask students on the first day of class to write about how they felt when they thought of the future, whatever came to mind. They used words like optimistic, and said they couldn't wait to graduate and move out of their parents' houses. They mentioned starting families or making enough money to travel. Every now and then someone might mention climate change and mass ecological disruptions on the horizon. But those students often expressed cautious hope that technology would save us in the end, or that society could still shift course in time to head off worst-case scenarios. Even the few alarmists typically focused on catastrophe a hundred years in the future— or its effects on people far away. A decade later, I still ask students the same question, but their responses read like something from a different era. Here's a sample from 2020. When I think about our future, all I can imagine is hell. Water wars, mass extinction, infertile soil. Another wrote, I feel hopeless, useless, futureless, angry, and powerless. When I imagine living through the dark times ahead, I wonder how it will feel to know that we allowed life on Earth to go down. And a third student said, I feel a paralyzing mix of hopelessness and frustration. I have nightmares weekly, and when I think about the future, all I can see is apocalypse. With the overwhelming changes happening already, how can one not believe we're screwed? It's no surprise that climate grief is on the rise. While we used to hear predictions about environmental disruption, now we're seeing consequences. The young people who wrote those responses have watched our mountain snowpack recede and summer skies in Seattle turn dark with wildfire smoke. They've seen orca whales disappear from our waters and waited for phone calls to hear if loved ones had survived after Gulf Coast hurricanes. Their hope and energy are undercut by despair especially when they see so much inaction in the face of these threats. And that's what worries me most. We can't afford for anyone to sit this out. And that's especially true for the current generation of young people that stands to lose the most from chaos on the horizon. We need climate action on the scale of World War II mobilizations, every nation and community overhauling the systems that are driving us off a cliff and every individual doing their part as well to reject our suicide economy and the lifestyles and belief systems maintaining it. Many have already thrown themselves into this work, but others are stuck on the sidelines, paralyzed by that sense of fear and hopelessness. I don't always agree with the worst-case scenarios my students imagine, but if a whole generation of problem-solvers retreats in despair and allows the status quo to maintain its course— their predictions of apocalypse will indeed come to pass. As climate activist Emily Johnson argues, it's especially devastating to consider that if we let this world die, 
if we let it be slaughtered by the shockingly small number of villains who have lied to us for decades, then we become complicit because we are the only ones with the leverage to help it live again. Those who come after us will have far less ability to do so, as we have far less ability than our parents would have had they known the truth to the degree that we do. For better and for worse, we are the ones at the intersection of knowledge and agency. So the world needs you, Johnson concludes, and it needs you right now, because anything we do this year or next is worth 10 of the same thing 10 years from now. Nothing has ever been more important than holding the world well back from any of the tipping points that we haven't crossed yet, and they are perilously close. Luckily, there are steps we can all take to overcome hopelessness and move swiftly into action. I've seen these strategies work with students, scientists, activists, and educators. This episode outlines four basic principles you can follow to move beyond climate despair. The first step is no different than with any other major shock in life. We have to acknowledge it. But with climate change, the public has been stuck in a lethal state of denial for decades. I'm not just talking about personal denial, like the temporary shock we can experience after losing a loved one. I'm talking about socially constructed mass delusion. There are many studies illustrating how this collective denial works. But the one that always comes back to me is the famous Columbia University experiment where people were given a questionnaire to fill out, and partway through, the room began filling with smoke. If the person was alone, they quickly left the room and reported the issue. But if they were in a group and no one else responded, they too would keep taking the survey, sometimes long enough that the smoke started to make people cough. No one wants to be seen as alarmist or as going against the status quo when others are calmly proceeding with business as usual. But there are also more personal reasons we avoid acknowledging the scale of this crisis. Many of us worry that if we directly confront our fear and grief and anger, we'll fall into a bottomless pit of despair and never climb back out. In fact, the opposite is true and research confirms that most people quickly move on to solutions and actions once they've acknowledged unpleasant facts. That's partly because they're no longer investing all their energy in suppressing, denying, and deflecting the problem. When I run public workshops, I sometimes ask people to do that same writing activity where they list concerns about the future. Every time, there's someone in the group who says they're not especially concerned, or they don't really think about it much. But after 10 minutes of putting their thoughts on paper, they're surprised to see how much they wrote and discover that they're already in mourning, grieving for their futures, for the dreams and bucket lists they'll have to abandon, for places they loved that will never be the same, for wild creatures their children may never see, or for the children they might not even have now. They hadn't let themselves admit this, thinking that the pain would be too much to bear. But the truth is, They've already borne that pain. And after acknowledging it, they say they feel lighter, more focused, and ready to act. The second step in combating climate anxiety is to talk about it. As the old saying in neuroscience goes, if you can name it, you can tame it. 
But besides being personally therapeutic, the benefits of talking openly about climate distress are social as well. We often think that people fail to act on climate because they don't care or don't know enough about the problem. But research shows that's not true. In the U.S., national surveys run by Yale University show that almost 90% of Americans believe climate change is happening, and more than 6 in 10 identify as being concerned or very worried. But we live in a culture of climate silence, which leads people to bottle up that fear and concern. If you don't believe me, try getting others to talk about climate the next time you're on a bus or buying coffee. Climate communication expert George Marshall has been testing this for years, dropping climate change into conversations with strangers or making some other casual remark about the weird weather. Here's what he wrote about it. Quote, However I say it, the result is always the same. The words sink and die in midair, and the conversation suddenly changes course. This is hard to describe, but anyone who tries it knows exactly what I mean. It is like an invisible force field that you only discover when you barge right into it. Few people ever do, because without ever having been told, they have somehow learned that this topic is out of bounds. This is extremely dangerous, for the simple reason that we are social creatures, and evidence-based psychology shows that having conversations and social interactions is the driving force for behavior change. Whether we're interacting at workplaces, schools, sporting events, or on social media, we look around and take our cues from each other. And when people don't talk openly about an issue, it seems less urgent or less relevant to our lives. At best, we assume the problem is out there impacting other people, or that solutions lie with actors like scientists or politicians. In short, people who aren't us. The other reason for talking about climate fear and anger is it makes people feel less alone. A huge part of our depression and anxiety comes from feeling isolated. And when people feel alone, they aren't empowered to act. There's nothing more demoralizing than thinking you're the only one who takes a problem seriously. But this is easy to reverse. Student surveys in my classes confirmed that the single most helpful element for them was being in the room with others talking about the same distress and feeling heard when they voiced their own troubles. Cognitive psychology shows that these exchanges create a sense of solidarity and community, which is exactly what motivates us to get involved. In short, climate activists have to ditch the assertions that we don't have time for talk or that we need less talk and more action. This thinking is deeply misguided. When it comes to our climate crisis, talk is action. A third strategy for beating the climate blues is to spend time outside and give yourself breaks for pleasure and recovery. As Rachel Carson once wrote, those who contemplate the beauty of the earth find reserves of strength that will endure as long as life lasts. There is something infinitely healing in the repeated refrains of nature the assurance that dawn comes after night and spring after winter. But if poetic framings like that don't convince you, you can simply look at the mountain of scientific research showing that time spent in green spaces elevates mood, lowers blood pressure and heart rate and stress, and even decreases the risk of developing psychiatric disorders. 
There are many mechanisms behind those therapeutic benefits, but one of the clearest links shows that the sights and sounds of nature decrease cortisol, the stress hormone that triggers the body's fight or flight response. With cortisol levels under control, the anxious chatter in our minds falls quiet and our hearts and bodies relax. But here's the cruel irony. Many environmental activists spend less time enjoying the places they love as they become more invested in saving them. Activists are passionate by nature, which makes them notoriously bad at giving themselves breaks. I fall into this trap repeatedly, convincing myself that I have to say yes to every request from colleagues and attend every meeting or volunteer event or protest. When I don't, I'm filled with guilt. But the work will still be there when we return. The climate battle is a marathon, not a sprint, so it's crucial to budget our energy for the long work ahead. We might take our cue from professional athletes who know that caring for themselves through proper rest is just as vital to their performance as other parts of their training. And if you do catch yourself feeling guilty, remember the wisdom of Audre Lorde, who said, Caring for myself is not a self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. But most importantly, being in nature reminds us why it's worth fighting for climate solutions in the first place. Despite all the losses, the world is still full of beauty and teeming with life. Wild strawberries and snapdragons, sea stars and salamanders. Take a day to disengage from the terrible headlines and reconnect with a world where salmon are making journeys across vast distances to spawn. Where cedar saplings on the forest floor patiently wait to shoot up through an opening. Where turtles are hatching and whales and ravens are breathing the same air we all share. Far more powerful than any words I can offer are the beauties you'll encounter if you simply head out and look. What better answer is there to the question of why we should fight? The final step is to take action. Action is the best antidote to grief. There's nothing more therapeutic. Of course, if you're stuck in the depths of climate despair, this may seem easier said than done because we often assume people need to feel hope before they'll act. But that thinking is backwards. It's action that gives rise to hope, not the other way around. The philosopher Joanna Macy calls this active hope. Like gardening or tennis, active hope is a practice. It's something you do rather than something you have. In all my years working with students, I've never heard a single one say they felt worse after joining a service project or a protest or some other community effort. That's because action turns us from spectators into protagonists and makes us feel both empowered and connected to others in a movement that's greater than any individual. And it also helps to remember that hope has many meanings, and we usually just focus on the more common definition of hope as probability or expectation— but that kind of hope is a trap, because it requires us to believe that our preferred outcome will likely happen. And if the odds aren't in our favor, or we don't think they are, we won't bother. The version we need now is intrinsic hope, which isn't dependent on factors beyond our control. This kind of hope arises from the knowledge that how we choose to use our time on Earth defines who we are. And nothing could be more meaningful than acting on behalf of life itself. 
guided by hope generated from within, we commit to participate in climate solutions, not because we're convinced we'll win, but because fighting for a livable future is the only sane and moral way to live in these times. The Czech political dissident and prisoner Václav Havel once wrote, Intrinsic hope arises from the opportunity to work for something because it is good, not because it stands a chance to succeed. For that reason, he explained that hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. Yet even after we commit to action, it can be hard to know where to start in the face of such a complex crisis. What's the most effective way to use our energy and time? There's actually no single response to that, which is both daunting and liberating. Climate disruption is an all-encompassing threat that intersects with every aspect of life. Our economy and consumer habits, who we elect and how we hold them accountable, food and agriculture, the books we read our children, the way we design buildings and cities, our education system, arts and culture, the stories we tell and values we communicate, human rights, social justice, and just about everything else you can think of. As Sarah Jaquette Ray has said, in the climate battle, the front lines are everywhere. That's not just a challenge, but also an opportunity, because it means there are endless ways people can engage. You don't have to be a scientist or wait for a protest in the streets. Just prioritize two things. Identify what you're good at, so you'll be effective. And identify what you're passionate about, so you don't lose motivation. That could mean writing or working through the arts or social media, making changes in your workplace or your school, planting community gardens or joining other service projects. Taking action can mean listening openly and respectfully to someone you disagree with, or working with kids or older folks. There are developers designing video games with climate themes and people working in realms of law and public health. Just as nature needs diversity to flourish, so does the movement to save it. But besides boosting our sense of agency, there are two more reasons that action matters. First, it exercises our civic muscles, which is crucial in a moment when we desperately need collective response. We've lost essential time fixating on individual consumer changes, like buying eco-friendly products or eating less meat and carrying reusable bags. Those efforts are important, but they pale in comparison to what coordinated political action can achieve. Systemic threats like climate disruption require organization at every level, communities, states, nations, and international agreements to coordinate among them. We simply don't have the time it would take to solve this crisis through gradual lifestyle changes. And second, getting engaged in climate solutions builds solidarity and helps us see ourselves as part of a team, which is desperately needed by all of those whose despair comes from feeling alone. If we focus on individual actions, they're bound to feel insignificant compared to the massive scale of this crisis, and that's a recipe for helplessness. But if we imagine ourselves as working collectively, then each local action can be seen as a contribution that spirals out to join and amplify a larger network of change. Every complex system is made up of countless smaller actions and connections, 
which is why Donatella Meadows reminds us to think in terms of leverage points, where a small shift in one thing can produce big changes in everything, whether that larger system is a city, an economy, a living body, or a planet. We can't wait for triumphant moments and expect them to be like the climax of a movie, where all the actors reunite and the music swells and the storylines converge. Social change doesn't work like that. It's hard to see, and turning points can be impossible to pinpoint or measure. So the next time you hear Greta Thunberg giving a speech before the masses, remember that she's just a single conspicuous point resulting from the invisible work of thousands of unnamed people behind the scenes. Scientists, activists, organizers, and journalists who brought attention to the climate story, the teachers who ignited her awareness at school, some anonymous passerby who said an encouraging word to keep her going through the long days of striking alone, and all the youth climate strikers and other decentralized forces spreading and amplifying her message and having impacts which are impossible to trace and may not be visible until years down the road. That should be reason for hope rather than discouragement. Because every time we have a conversation or share a book or inspire someone by example, those actions may get multiplied by a larger community that we've never met. We all yearn for purpose in our lives and for work that is real. Our last best chance is now. So even when the odds seem impossible, look to the wisdom of those before us who refuse to let despair win. As Margaret Mead once said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has.